I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Uh, before I introduce today's guest, who probably really doesn't need an introduction, um, I was talking with a, a friend, old colleague of mine the other day about interoperability and responsibility and all of that. And he hearkened back to the days where we had, I'm from a large multi-specialty group practice background. So we had a unified medical record. Pretty much everything about a patient's ever been done was in that medical record somewhere. Of course, it got a little bit better when it got electronic and then we've got problems finding things and all that kind of stuff. But one of the interesting things which we'll get into today a little bit that we did talk about is responsibility in interoperability. Uh, meaning what am I responsible for in receiving information when I'm responsible for giving information? How much do I give? Things like that. Because I remember very clearly when we were setting up our electronic health records about talking about the medication list, we had a psychiatry department who did not want to share their med lists with anyone. And I said, that's a danger. I, we cannot have incomplete medication lists because I'm going to prescribe something that interacts with something you prescribed, and then we're in trouble. So I understand that you want to keep everything about a psychiatric condition private, but you can't that, that you can take it too far. And we finally met in the middle, and yes, they did include all of their meds. What was interesting though is for an internist like me, I can look at a list of meds and pretty much tell what the patient has just by looking at the medications. So they're not keeping anything secret, but we'll talk a little bit about that when, uh, when we get a little bit further down in the interview. Today's guest has been here before and I thank you for coming back. It's Mickey Tripathi, who is the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he leads formulation of federal health IT strategy and coordinates federal health IT policies, standards, programs, and investments. Welcome, Mickey, to the program again. Thanks so much, Jay. Glad to be here. And I've been in the job almost two years now, and that still sounds like the description of the job. You know, <laughs> you never know. Uh, other duties as required. <laughs> right. <laughs> so things have been progressing along with, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act and information blocking, sharing rules and things like that. They've been around, the rules have been around for a while now, but the implementation of those rules has started. Uh, so can you give us a little bit of an update on that and what people can expect? Yeah, the um, 21st Century Cures Act, the interoperability pieces of it, and there's a pretty broad, you know, broad law that covered a lot of different things, but the pieces that relate directly to um, ONC and interoperability um, were, you know, in three categories. One was the information blocking provisions, as they were called. I like to think of them as the information sharing provisions, but they're called the information blocking provisions. Um, the second was standards, and that's um, to have standard APIs to allow um, access to information without special effort, which is what the statute actually said. Um, and there's also data standards um, uh, that, uh, that we call the USCDI, the US Core Data for Interoperability. And then the third provisions were related to TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, which is nationwide network interoperability. So let me, I'm happy to just, with each of those, give you a bullet or two on you know where we are with those, and then happy to dive down into any of those if that makes sense. Oh, please, please. Yeah. So with information blocking, 
Um, as you noted that, you know, the, the law was passed in 2016. Uh, draft rule, I think, was in 2019. Final rule was in 2020. So that took a long time, um, you know, already. Uh, that's a number of years that passed. But uh, and then and then it took a while for it to actually get implemented. It got delayed a few times and then got delayed for the pandemic. Um, but we came in and we, you know, put it in place. So April 1st, April 5th, 2021, we made it that the, the applicability date, meaning the all of the actors um, who are uh, required to um, comply with the information blocking rule, which is providers. That's a very broad definition of providers, health information networks, and um, certified technology developers, which is EHR vendors, Epic, Cerner, Athena Health, eClinicalWorks, were all required to be in compliance as of April 5th, 2021. There was another. Um, there, there was a, um, sort of a phasing um, in the um, in the implementation that said that um, starting on April fifth, the information that you were required to make available as a part of the you know to be in compliance with the regulation, we said that minimally it's just that minimum data set, the U.S. Core Data for Interoperability (USCDI), because we know that that's what's available in, in electronic health record systems and. You know, almost all providers who have EHRs support that today. That's what is available in the patient portal, for example. Um, you know, a provider may or may not know that, but the patient portal actually contains the US CDI. So we said, start with that because we know that that's easy. But, and that's for the first 18 months. But after 18 months, we have to open up the information that you're required to make available to all available information, um, or as the law called it, all electronically accessible information. And that was October 6th of this year. Second, and you know, happy to dive into that. Second is related to standards. So what the law specified was that we um, have a minimum data set and we call that the USCDI, which we update every year, which is basically what I think any provider, you, psychiatrist and orthopedic surgeon would probably all agree that, sure, if we're gonna agree on, you know, what's the minimum clinical information I'd like to get for any arbitrary patient who just shows up, right? Just shows up in the emergency department, shows up, you know, wherever, what would I like minimally like to know? That's kind of what the USCDI is. Um, and it also, um, uh, we also put into place a requirement for a standard interface across all EHR systems um, based on modern internet conventions. So that's the FHIR API. That's required to be available two customers, so two providers by the end of this calendar year. So just three weeks from now, every provider should have um, that available to them to be able to use for access for by patients, as well as sharing information with other providers, with public health, whatever they want to do. And then the third thing is TEFCA, the Trust Exchange Framework. That's network governance. You know, forget about what those words, you know, it's like federal government is terrible at branding, you know, so trusted exchange framework and common agreement doesn't tell you anything about what that is. It's basically network governance. And the way I like to describe that is, um, is you know, think about, you know, uh, the way cell phones work. You're on AT&T, I'm on Verizon, you know, Kevin, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, from our SAP is, uh, is on uh, uh, T-Mobile, let's say. Those phones talk to each other, right? In the background, there has been agreements made uh, across those across those uh, service providers to make sure that those phones talk to each other so that none of us you know has the challenge of figuring out oh you're on Verizon that means i can do this i can't do that that's what we want nationwide network to do that's what tefka does and um we are we announced at the beginning of this year that um that uh, uh you know here that that here is the technical framework and the legal requirements for participating in that and we anticipate going live with that in 2023 so tell me a little bit about the feedback you've been getting from folks. I mean, it's coming up. 
we're, we're going to fall into it here in three weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what kind of information the providers are giving, giving back to you about how this is going? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, a, a very wide spectrum of, uh, of you know, perspectives, as you might imagine. Uh, we're a complicated country, we're a complicated healthcare delivery system, so there's no single voice. We're certainly hearing, and I'll you know lump it all together in terms of you know the you know sort of the different things that we're doing, almost all the things we're doing. You know, we've gotten a lot of feedback, both for, you know from the patient community as well as from a lot of providers about the you know the positive aspects of the information blocking provisions. That it does you know create an obligation and a duty to share information. I think people are starting to recognize that that's a benefit. Um, it you know it certainly creates a responsibility on providers, let's say, as one of the three actors. To share information, but it also means that they have access to information that they weren't able to get before. Um, the case that you were just describing with a psychiatrist, for example, that actually would not under the information blocking provisions. Those psychiatrists are required to make that information available to you, um, because and we can talk about regulatory complexity. You know, there's there is nothing in HIPAA or 42 CFR, assuming there's no substance use issue related to that psych, you know, that psychiatric, um, uh, you know, encounter of the psychiatrist and the medications you were talking about. That there's nothing in HIPAA that says that you're they're not allowed to share that information. They absolutely are allowed to share that information. That's not a psychotherapy note, for example. So there's all that you know complexity there. They have the choice of saying, no, I'm not going to share that. Information blocking says, no, you don't have that choice, actually. You have to share the information unless it falls under one of the exceptions that we have, like a patient asked you not to share it, or you know, there's a security issue, or you think it's going to harm cause harm to the patient or whatever. Uh, you know, so that's like an explicit, explicit example of where you as a provider practicing at the time would see a benefit. You'd be like, great, that tells them they have to do that. I don't have to argue with them anymore or have big summit meetings with them. But I will also say there have certainly been providers who have been concerned about certain details of it. I mean, overall, I think most of the provider community is, has been strongly supportive of the overall objective and the mission. But there have been certain, uh, certainly have been providers who have been concerned about certain specific aspects of it, like, for example, the requirement that's an implication of the information blocking regulations that um, lab results, for example, um, and diagnostic results be available to patients um, as soon as they are available to the provider, which I think in every other walk of life, right, we've seen transparency be more and more a part of everything we do, right, with your financial information and, you know, with Uber Eats and <laughs> everything else you can do. So now that's coming to healthcare. And that's one aspect of the information blocking provisions that says, well, everyone has an expectation to be able to get the information that they paid for um, and that they may want to be able to use however they want to use it as soon as it's available. There have certainly been providers who have had concerns about that. Um, to say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not something that, you know, is a part of our culture. There may be patients who actually are, you know, um, uh, have a degree of anxiety or harm, perhaps emotional harm, if they, you know, get those results without a conversation with providers. I, you know, those are totally valid and legitimate concerns. We see those as kind of transition issues that all of us need to adjust and adapt to this new world and figure out the mechanisms for being able to have, you know, both immediate access to those results for those patients who want them. And there are a lot of patients who want the results right away. And the ability for patients to say, I'd rather not see those results until I have a chance to talk to my doctor. And in this world, we have the opportunity for both. And so that's, I think, the transition that all of us has to go through. But we've certainly, you know, heard that feedback from providers and we take it very seriously. We know that they, you know, that's, um, that's um, uh, you know, founded in, you know, real concern that those providers have for, you know, for their patients. That was also a little conversation I had with with my old colleagues about, you know, if a patient gets their lab result and it's abnormal in a certain way, 
how do you get the explanation to them? Because it may not be abnormal for them. It's an abnormal test, but for that, it may be very good for them. Yep. Uh, but you're exactly right. I think um, having that information out there, I mean, right now in this world where I live, I get my results before my doctor gets them. Yep, I do too. And that it's just the way it should work. I agree. That's, you know, that's my provider has been great at, you know, they've actually, you know, and I think this is a part of the transition and the adaptation we have to make. My provider, for example, when, when, when they order labs, I immediately get a message in the portal that says, we have ordered labs for you. You are going to receive these before your provider has a chance to talk to you. If you don't want to look at them, don't look at them. And your provider will call you, <laughs> you know, within 72 hours, your provider will call you. You have the choice. Don't go into the portal and look at them. Um, so I think that we can all, you know, and, and I know the technology vendors are working on other things. And we um, are working both with providers as well as EHR vendors to help to facilitate conversations with both of them to say, how can the technology make it easier for a provider to be able to, um, you know, sort of um, help um, through their EHR uh, accommodate? A patient's desires. So for example, to be able to say, this patient has asked me to delay the results. So rather than telling them, don't look at the portal, is there a way that I can, as a part of the order, you know, check a box that says patient has requested that I delay release for 72 hours. For, with information blocking, that would be totally appropriate. And that's totally fine, as long as you have that conversation with the patient. And now technology vendors are starting to incorporate that in their technology. So that's why I say some of this transition issues that we appreciate, not all EHRs can do that today, but we anticipate that you know more and more of that those capabilities will come into play. Let's uh, talk a little bit about enforcement and about what some of the penalties are if you decide for whatever reason, you're not gonna play. I'm sorry, I'm keeping my information private. Yep. Yeah, so um, the uh, you know as as uh, uh, as much as we appreciate the um, the 21st Century Cures Act and what it was trying to do and the congressional backing for everything we're trying to do, I will say that um, that the 21st Century Cures Act also handed us a very complex set of things to implement <laughs> as, as it relates to enforcement. Um, and so you know, so what it did is it gave ONC the authority to create the policy essentially for information blocking. So to say, what is information blocking? How is that defined operationally? And what might be the exclusions for um, someone who decides, as you said, I'm not gonna share the information. And that you know, the way the 21st Century Cures Act is, is um, uh, framed this is they kind of change the paradigm to say, we're gonna approach this with the assumption that all data should flow. And, you, you need to have an exclusion or an exception for why you wouldn't share the information, right? Which kind of complete, you know, puts HIPAA on its head in a way, right? Because HIPAA says you're permitted to share information, but it's up to you to decide whether to share it. 21st Century Cures Act literally says, no, you should be sharing the information unless you have a good reason not to. And those, those are those exceptions. And so that's what it said. ONC, you, you know, create the operational definition for that and you define those exceptions. But as it regards enforcement, they said the Office of Inspector General, our sister agency in HHS, is responsible for the actual enforcement, which means they're the ones who will look at complaints. Oh, and it also said that ONC will receive the complaints. So we can, we receive complaints. Um, and I can talk about that in a second. Um, and then it said OIG, though, will be responsible for reviewing those complaints, deciding which ones to investigate, and then deciding who is in violation of that and imposing penalties. So that's one complexity already, right? You have a different agency that is doing the policy from a different, you know, different agency that's actually doing the enforcement. Second complexity is with the penalties, 
they said for health technology vendors, like EHR vendors, and for health information networks, they can have penalties of up to a million dollars per incident if the, you know, up to the OIG, right? And that's a big penalty, right? That's way bigger than HIPAA penalties, for example. Um, so that's that's real. And um, not that HIPAA penalties aren't real, but it's a, you know, it's a lot of money. And it's a very, and it's a pretty severe penalty, or it could be, but they gave new authority to the Office of the Inspector General for doing that. But added wrinkle, um, added complexity, as they said, providers are going to have a different type of penalty. Providers will have what they called appropriate disincentives. And they said appropriate disincentives will be, we're not going to define that. We're going to ask the Secretary of Health and Human Services to define what appropriate disincentives are. And we're also going to say that the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services is only allowed to use existing authorities to define those appropriate disincentives, right? So they gave new authority to the Office of Inspector General to impose fines of up to a million dollars each on technology developers and networks. But for providers, they said, we're not gonna define that. Secretary defines that. And oh, by the way, you can't do it with any new authority. You have to use the existing programs and the existing authorities you have. That makes it really complicated because <laughs> now you're you know, placing it in the hands of the secretary's office. It doesn't give it to an agency like to ONC or FDA. So the secretary has to decide, well, which agency is gonna do this? What's an appropriate disincentive? And just from a legal statutory perspective, where do I have the authority to impose that penalty? Because you know the Office of General Counsel you know, can come in and say, I understand you want to do it here, but the statute doesn't allow us to do it within, you know, that particular statute, whatever it is. So that's a lot of the complexity. So we've, you know, we kind of came in, not a whole lot had been done on that. We have, you know, been doing a lot of work, um, you know, on defining appropriate disincentives, on, you know, working on, you know, sort of creating the policy framework for that. I don't have any timelines to share on that, but I can assure you of uh, a couple of things. One is, we will absolutely have enforcement um, for providers <laughs> and we're working really hard on it. And um, we are, and that's the second thing is that we're working really, really hard on it. And um, really what is, uh, you know, the reason for the delay is just the complexity of it. Let's let's talk a little bit then about that that middle piece. We we talked about providers, but now I just got back from health as probably you, you were there too. Yep. There was a plethora of what I call data middlemen, aggregators, massagers, all, all the things you can do with medical health records and data. It's, it's interesting to see the, how many of them there are, but it was also interesting to see how are they going to fit in? Because there's the, you know, QHINs, QHINs, and a lot of these are QHINs, but are they networks? Are they data aggregators? What's their responsibility in the middle of all of this to get the record from A to B? Yeah. Um... It's a, you know, it's, it's a great question. And it's a really complex and, and increasingly complex ecosystem <laughs> that we have here. And so um, just to, you know, unbundle that a little bit. So under TEFCA, there's this idea of QHINs, as you've noted, Qualified Health Information Networks. There aren't any that have been designated yet, but we anticipate in 20, early 2023, announcing the first ones that have gone through the approval process to be approved and who have agreed to the terms and conditions and the technical um, requirements to become a QHIN. We expect to announce that on um, the first group that have come through in early 2023. And then they um, we expect them to implement in 2023. So there will be these qualified networks that will have the, uh, you know, the responsibility and the opportunity to be able to you know, um, exchange information with other parties over Kafka. And then as you point out, so they could be one form of 
data middlemen as you know and and some of them may aggregate information and may you know sort of store information others may just be brokers right they actually don't even look at the information they literally are like the old phone switchboards right they get the call they see that it's supposed to go there it's like here i got the message i see it goes needs to go to dr uh, dr anders i'm going to send it to dr anders i have no idea what's in it i'm like the us post office I just, you know, I'm looking at the address and sending it, you know, where it needs to go. Um, so, you know, so there's a whole variety of those kind of middlemen um, kind of services. But, you know, but to your point, there are, you know, increasingly data aggregators performing value-added functions. Um, you know, in in uh, almost all cases, I would argue there are they're performing value-added functions, which is to say they take data that is really messy, they curate it. They normalize it, and then they do an analysis on it on behalf of those parties that they're, you know, they're contracted with. Um, what the 21st Century Cures Act opens up is the opportunity for them to work for, they've already been working for providers in many, many cases. So, you know, I used to work for a company that was a population health management vendor, and we had, you know, nationwide provider customers and payer customers who would send us their data and ask us to normalize that data, make it ready for analysis, make it ready for clinical quality measurement, for example, for population health management, um, because they themselves couldn't do it. You know, then someone has to do the work. They just decided to outsource it. And that all was within HIPAA. Business associate agreement, privacy requirements were all there. You know, they weren't they weren't allowed to do anything with the information except as, as HIPAA allows. Um, increasingly, patients are being offered the opportunity by a lot of these aggregators or a lot of these companies to say, hey, we can provide you with the opportunity of you get your data and you make it available to us. Or we'll offer you the technology for you to be able to access your information and you know, and then do certain things, um, you know, uh, um, that you want us to uh, be able to do. I think one of the challenges that we face as a society is that once information passes outside of HIPAA, it becomes the individual's responsibility, almost their complete responsibility to control or figure out what's happening with their data and take responsibility for what's happening with that data. And that's a big challenge because most people, um, you know, don't appreciate what the boundaries of HIPAA are, unfortunately, um, right? So a lot of people think that, well, it's medical record data, so it must be protected by HIPAA. And they don't realize, no, 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 it's only protected by HIPAA if Dr. J. Anders is controlling that data. <laughs> but the minute that you, the individual, have the data in your hands, now it's not protected by HIPAA anymore. And so when you, you know, download that app in the same way that, you know, you, know, you download OpenTable, and we all click through, you know, click, 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 click. And we don't think about it because, you know, I'm not really revealing anything except my phone number and my email address. So, you know, we don't worry about it. But if you do that same thing with a healthcare app and you say, click, 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 click. And the healthcare app says in it, you know, in its privacy statement, we can take your data and do whatever we want with it. If you clicked okay on that, and all of a sudden you don't realize that you have given them the chance, you know, the, the um, permission to sell your identified data in whatever way they want, for example. So I think that's one of the real challenges that we have as a society is to you know kind of educate people on that responsibility that they are now taking into their hands. We are betting on there being a ton of value that will be available to patients through the access to their information. So you know, imagine for example that uh, you know you develop a whole ecosystem of of you know of uh, of services to be able to help diabetic patients better manage their diabetes, for example by bringing in information from other things, by bringing in expertise and services, but they need that medical record information, right? There are many, many, many legitimate, um, you know, sort of, I think, um, uh, value-added services that can be provided directly to patients as consumers 
to um, help them take advantage of um, their medical record information to do better things than they're able to today. Unfortunately, there are many you know, players who aren't the best actors in the world <laughs> um, who will take advantage of that situation and use that information in ways that the patient didn't um, anticipate and is a surprise to them. Let's touch on that for just a minute. Yep. Because in the industry today, you can see major corporations, CVS, Walmart, they're starting up and buying practices. They're getting patients. They're setting up clinics. Um, I mean, being in this world, you can see where the information that they will glean from patients can be used in a lot of other ways. So I'd, I'd like your comment on that, because that's if you're the drug company who supplies all the medications and you've got a primary care practice. That's all back in the old days, that was called a nermit. You couldn't do that. You, mm -hmm. you had to stay away from that. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, you know, so the laws haven't changed on that. And certainly from a provider, you know, from a patient and provider perspective, um, anyone who, if you're, if you're a provider, um, and you're engaged in, you know, in HIPAA transactions or, you know, electronic transactions, you are covered by HIPAA. So the fact that, you know, you may be a retail entity, let's say, um, but you now have also got providers. Well, those providers still live under HIPAA, right? So they, they have to create the firewalls within their organization to say, you know, HIPAA says you're not allowed to share, you know, you're only allowed to share the information with other HIPAA regulated entities for treatment, payment, and operations. If it's identified without consent of the patient, you're not allowed to use that information for marketing. You're not allowed to use that information in a wide variety of ways. You're only allowed to make that information available outside the boundaries of the, you know, of the HIPAA regulated entity um, uh, unless it's de-identified in the ways that HIPAA prescribes, which is true for providers today. Those rules still apply. So just because you're a corporate entity, that part of your entity that is, you know, HIPAA regulated is still HIPAA regulated. You don't have any special permission to say, oh, I've got this retail business on the side. I don't need to follow HIPAA. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. that part of your organization still needs to follow HIPAA. Um, and, you know, and what, and what we've seen, I will say, you know, that, you know, the, those organizations have proven themselves to be, I think, responsible stewards. I mean, I'm not, you know, giving them any additional uh, blessing or anything. I'm just saying that, you know, that they, Good. you know, they, they act as providers, as we've seen in the market, as just as other providers do. Let's finish up with uh, what we kind of started with meaning uh, I would call data responsibility on the provider side. This is, this is not a new concept. We've had this for a very long time. Yep. You know, in a clinic with a unified medical record, you're responsible for what's in that medical record, even though you may not have provided it. You may have to look for it, you have to find it, whatever. The thing I was talking about with my old colleagues was the fact that say there is an abnormal mammography result that gets broadcast to me and I don't see it for whatever reason. It's not there. And now I'm taking over the care of this patient. Patients sometimes don't realize that they had that. So that, you know, there's delays and all that. So there is a responsibility. So comment a little bit on that, on how we're going to migrate through. And it's going to be a lot of data. When these medical records that are being transmitted are huge. So give me a little comment on, on that, how that you feel about that. And provider responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a totally valid and understandable question. And I would you know say um, just let like, just give a little uh, you know anecdote from 
back when I first was, you know, gotten involved in health IT. So we, um, uh, I ran a company called the Massachusetts Health Collaborative, where we were implementing electronic health records um, across uh, in three communities in Massachusetts. So 600 providers, community providers, we were implementing electronic health records through uh, funding that was provided by, by Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that was Greenfield. So that was paper-based, literally paper-based providers who we were, you know, implementing electronic health records, right? This is back in 2005, right? So whole different world, right? Completely different world. And I remember being with one provider who we were, you know, standing in front of her, um, her file cabinet, which was an open file cabinet, like you, like, well, you always say in the pictures, right? Right behind the reception desk, all those manila folders, you know, and there was the whole thing going up and down. And, you know, she was just looking up at them and she said, you know, every day I walk by this, this, all these folders, thousands of folders. And I think, what did we miss? Where is it? It is somewhere, right? She's like, I know it's not a, it's not an if, um, it's where is it? I know there is something I've missed. There is some mammogram that came in that our staff put away in this file, never to be seen again until that patient has a bad experience and then they come back and we find it. So I, I guess I just, I, just, I just say that because this is not a new problem. I, I appreciate that it is different in scale for sure, right? Now all of a sudden you're getting way more records and some of them kind of come in a little bit like it feels like the back door. Right. It's like, well, at least there was someone who had to take it off the fax or who had to open up the envelope and did it, you know, their eyeballs were laid on it. But now I've got this electronic medical record where thousands of records are coming in the back door and no one, you know, is is uh, managing the, you know, the tree uh, doing the triage or monitoring the front, monitoring the door to make sure that everything is looked at. I think that's a, you know, that's a very fair and legitimate point. I guess I would just say, uh, you know, a few things that the, you know, the questions of responsibility are no different than, you know, than existed in the paper world for sure. Um, there was a big problem in the paper world. There is that same, you know, issue today about having uh, um, to place responsibility. I will say that, you know, electronic systems offer some advantages, though, and some benefits. First off, they have a much better ability, and that, and that, you know, that we need to get it needs to get better and better and better, and the technology needs to get better and better and better, and the quality of data needs to get better and better and better to be able to do the kind of search and screening and filtering to be able to identify those things. And I think the technology is getting better at being able to do that to pick those things out. Um, and to provide some traceability and auditability, right? To be able to say um, that you can say with, you know, with greater assurance in an electronic medical record, for example, here is what was actually looked at. Things came in, but here is what was actually looked at versus, you know, in a paper record, it's like, it was in that file. And it's really hard for you to say, oh, well, I didn't see it. Um, <laughs> um, because it's in the file. And so we assume that, you know, that you saw it and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in malpractice or anything like that, but I'm just pointing out that the benefits of being able to have more sophisticated search capabilities that will get better and better over time and the ability to have better auditability over one's actions provides additional information that can hopefully, you know, sort of help and compensate somewhat for what I totally appreciate is the concern about information coming in the back door. Because I remember, you know, when we were implementing these electronic health records and and we um and we turned on a lab interface and all the labs started coming in, right? And and I was literally sitting there because this is you know, this was new, right, for all of us. So we lab interface, we went through the testing, uh, go live. And so I made sure I showed up at that first practice we were implementing to see it, you know, to actually see the lab interface. And the lab started coming in, and his response was, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> turn it off. Turn it off. How do, how do I turn the faucet off? You know, what is all of this? And I was like, what is all of this, doctor? These are the labs you ordered. 
the same labs you ordered. <laughs> They're just coming in through the interface. Um, so, you know, but I, that's different because with interoperability, you're getting a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't order, right? So I appreciate that the scope of it, you know, is broader for sure. I think that our pro our workflows and our technologies are certainly have to adjust. And there are, you know, technology offers the way to, I think, offer, you know, sort of a compensatory better abilities to work out, you know, to make our way through those, um, through those records to, um, to the betterment of all of us. So I'm going to finish up with the question I always ask. If there's one thing that you could change in the scope of what you do, you know, in healthcare IT, what would it be? This, it would happen. It would happen overnight. <laughs> uh, okay. I guess, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think the uh, the one thing, you know, I was going to point to a single thing. Um, I think it would be that we, you know, figure out the right business model to allow, you know, payment for value, value-based purchasing, you know, whatever it is we call it. Um, and, you know, when we're, we're making steady progress toward that, right? More and more and more. But in my experience, being able to... Um, compensate people for you know better health and providing better health to their patients then makes all of this stuff related to health IT an investment that they make and not just a part of overhead right right now like if you're in a fee for service world health IT is just overhead right it doesn't really change the way you get paid it doesn't change the way you you know maybe it offers some efficiencies but at the end of the day if the business you know drivers aren't completely aligned with that investment, it just becomes a part of overhead and it just feels like, why am I doing this? Or I'm doing it for the health insurer. I'm doing it because the government wants me to do it, but I'm not doing it because it's, you know, it's it's actually a part of the way that I get paid and the way I get compensated and the way I get fulfillment. But, you know, we've seen that the minute that providers participate in meaningful value-based purchasing, where they're incented to just say, think about your patient, think about what's in the best interest of your patient and do the right set of things. That's when they immediately say, I need all this other information. I need all that claims data to know where the patient went. I need that interoperability. And they're not seeing all that all those records coming in as a liability. They're seeing all those records coming in as the opportunity to provide better care to their patients because they have a better picture of their patients. So if I was going to be able to do one thing, I'd want to be able to say everyone is now on that type of contract and getting paid in that way so that they themselves can then make the best decisions they want to be able to make um, uh, on behalf of their patients and see all of this as an investment um, toward that better future. Mickey, thank you so much for being on the program today. Um, it's been a pleasure and a lot of really good information for listeners. Again, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Always enjoy talking to you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.